everyone. Welcome to the CSBI podcast. I'm here with uh, Philippe Lemoine, one of our research fellows, and he's the author of a new paper. We're going to talk about a new blog post called Lockdowns, Econometrics, and the Art of Putting Lipstick on a Pig. Uh, Philippe, how are you doing? Hey, I'm great. How about you? I'm doing good. Yeah. Th- uh, you know, thanks for coming on. Thanks for writing this. I mean, you've done it again. I think your uh, last pa- your last uh, blog on uh, Flaxman uh, was just a work of art. It was really beautiful. Uh, we talked about it on the uh, podcast before, and this one is is, is similar. Uh, so can you just tell us what is this paper that you're responding to in the broadest terms? What does it do and what do you do in response? Yes, yes. So uh, roughly, this is a paper written by three uh, economics e- economists. I mean, actually, econometricians, you know, statisticians, are, they're kind of like a mix of uh, statisticians and, and, uh, and economists. And they've written this paper where they try to evaluate the effect of various non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, during the first wave in the U.S. So by no, the, the non-pharmaceutical intervention in questions, they're mandating face masks for, face masks for uh, employees in public-facing businesses, closing K-12 schools, uh, closing non-essential businesses, and uh, stay at, uh, issuing a stay-at-home order. And so what they did is that they used uh, pretty sophisticated uh, econometrics tools, so the kind of uh, statistical techniques that economists use to uh, study the effect of various policies or you know various events, etc. And they've tried to use this uh, to evaluate the effect that those policies had during the first wave of the pandemic in the U.S. And and so what's interesting about this paper, the reason I I, I chose this paper and I looked into this paper is that. Um, it's actually much more sophisticated and careful than the average study on the effect of non-pharmaceutical interventions during the pandemic. So like most studies don't really uh, pay attention to the facts or try to control for the fact that uh, people voluntarily change behavior, even in the absence of, um, of uh, government interventions. And so this can usually bias the, their conclusions uh, and all sorts of other difficulties, you know. And th- this paper is unusually careful in that respect because mm-hmm. they start from a realistic causal model. And uh, the entire setup, the entire model is motivated by this causal model. So they think carefully about uh, what's the causal tr- structure of the pandemic and, you know, how uh, interventions affect it but how the pandemic itself affects what intervention is. Yeah. So this is important. It's not, you're not straw manning. You're not picking on a paper because it's unusually weak. You went, the the best or, you know, one of the best economic, econometric, uh, uh, analyses, statistical analyses of what do non-pharmaceutical interventions, lockdowns, etc. Uh, how well they they prevent the spread of coronavirus and how many lives they saved. Right. So what is yeah, the, what is yeah. the, what is the typical what does the typical paper do? The typical paper just looks at uh, uh, looks at an intervention. You know, it, it tracks the date. It sees what happens afterwards, and it doesn't take into account any. Uh, aspect of of uh, human behavior is that right or what? People yeah, are yeah. I mean, you you, have, you basically have you you basically have two kinds of paper. You have on the one hand you have the kind of paper that epidemiologists write, and what they do typically is that they make extremely strong mechanistic assumptions about how the epidemic works, basically, and so they make assumptions, ridiculous assumptions, like yeah. the only thing that affects transmission is government interventions, and so they completely disregard. Uh, 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 voluntary 
change uh, behavioral changes uh, that that people engage in in response to changes in epidemic conditions. So basically, you know, uh, when people when people start dropping dead around them, people they're not going to go out as often. They're going to get scared, you know, so they won't be seeing their friends as much as they used to, et cetera, et cetera. And the typical epidemiological papers during this pandemic has completely ignored this, or almost completely ignored this. And then you have also people who use the uh, uh, more traditional uh, econometrics uh, approach, uh, where in that case, they don't really make strong assumptions about um, the underlying causal processes. You know, they don't pretend to. It's, it's pretty agnostic. Those models are pretty agnostic about the underlying processes at work that generates the epidemic. What they do is that they, it's basically they look at correlation. It's like what you said, you know, they look at the dates at which uh, such and such interventions were in place, and they look at whether if you there is a correlation between this intervention being in place and the epidemic growing uh, more slowly than it does when the intervention is not in place, and then they infer uh, causation from this correlation. But the problem is that if I'm right, and, and I'm right, you know, there is like a lot of evidence that that shows this without uh, any possible doubt. Uh, that people adjust their behavior voluntarily when uh, the epidemic starts going badly, then if you do this, the risk is that uh, you're going to conclude that uh, government interventions have reduced transmission a lot, for instance, because uh, when uh, governments typically uh, enact this type of uh, policies, it's when things go bad, but when things go bad, it's also typically when ordinary citizens change their behavior in a way that reduces transmission. Transmission, So you're going to attribute a lot of the effect that is really due to people voluntarily changing their behavior to the government intervention that may not be doing much on its own. Or, you know, there is also another possibility, which is that precisely because governments tend to enact this type of policy when things go bad, are going badly, uh, it means that when they do enact it, often, you know, it could be that the epidemic is, is growing very fast. And so you might be inferring that the interventions actually made things worse uh, because, uh, but when really it's not the case, what happened is just that there is what economists call the endogeneity, an endogeneity problem, which is that, you know, when the uh, people, governments have tended to enact those policies when things were going badly. So of course, if you do a correlation, you, you're going to, you might uh, find that typically, you know, uh, enacting this type of of uh, interventions is is uh, correlated with um, uh, the epidemic growing stronger. If you interpret that interpret that causally, you're going to infer that the interventions actually made things worse. When in fact that's not the case. It's just this problem that you know it's difficult to infer causation from uh, correlational data. Mm-hmm. And so you know for, for various reasons, I don't really believe this second possibility is a is a big worry. I think the first one is much more. Uh, uh, concerning in practice, but you know both are theoretical possibilities, and and you have to m- most studies just simply don't really care about that sort of things. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so and so this guy Victor uh, Chernochkov is the uh, big author, is the uh, the main author. Uh, he's a statistician at MIT. Um, so he's more sophisticated than most people. His paper and uh, with his co-authors well, yes, got yes. something like. 
200 something citations. And so this is, this is the cutting edge. What does he do differently? How does, how does he overcome these, these problems and these other, uh, kind of So, so I, sh- I should say he's not, he's not alone. Uh, he has two co-authors. One is called Paul Shrimps. I know because I've talked with him. Uh, I forgot the name. I, I apologize to the, the third one. I forgot his name, but there is a third person who was involved. And so, uh, clearly that they're all like very sophisticated, uh, uh economists and, uh, econometricians, uh, and what they do differently is that first of all, before they started like, uh, they put, before they put together a model to estimate the impact of uh, government interventions, they just paused for a second and if they thought, okay, what's the, uh, let, let's figure out what, let's think about what could be the, the, the causal process, you know, here. And, and what they do is that they, they, they say, okay, if we, if you think about it, if you think about it, it's not just, you know, Government interventions, we expect them to have some effect on transmission, but we also expect people to voluntarily change their behavior, and we expect that this is also going to have an effect on transmission. But moreover, we expect, so, you know, basically you have, what they put together is a a causal schema where, okay, you have the epidemic itself. The epidemic itself changing the uh, growth of the epidemic is going to cause different things. It's going to cause people to change their behavior which in turn is going to affect the epidemics by making it grow uh, more slowly. But it's also going to cause governments to enact interventions to, in the hope that it will make the epidemic grow more slowly or, you know, even recede. And, and, you know, those interventions, we expect them to have some effect on on transmission. Uh, And so you have this kind of, there's this complex causal, uh, causal processes and, and what they do is that one, one, one nice thing about their paper, and they start by thinking, by, by carefully thinking this through, you know, the different ways in which the different variables can affect each other and affect the outcome. And once they've done that, they put together a system of equations, which under some circumstances, which hopefully are met, although as they're aware and even saying the paper, we, we, we have no way to know for sure, um, will allow you to recover causal effects for each of those variables, taking into account the other. So you're going to get, you know, if things go right, you're going to get the the actual causal effect of the government interventions um, without, you know, attributing some of uh, what's really the effect of people's voluntary, voluntary change of behavior to the intervention. Now, you're going to get the real causal effect of intervention. You're going to get the real causal effect of people's voluntary change in behavior, uh, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, you, you won't make, you won't, uh, make the same mistakes that many other studies do, uh, and attribute, uh, part of the effect of voluntary changes in behavior to, uh, government interventions or, uh, you know, the epidemic going bad, causing governments to enact some policies. And then you're going to be like, oh, you know, that, that's, that conclude, falsely conclude that the, interve- the interventions made, made things worse. So, you know, they're, they're, they're basically what they did, what they did the, that was better than the other papers is that most of their papers, the vast majority of other papers is that they thought carefully about the complex causal relations between the different variables at play here. And, and then once they've done that, they've used, uh, uh, standard econometrics, uh, techniques to sort this out, you know, to be able to isolate the causal effects of these different variables. And of course, you know, it's, it's still very difficult, you know, it still relies on many assumptions and something I discussed in the paper, you know, we, we, we never know for sure 
uh, if they're right. In some cases, we have very good reasons to think they're not uh, right. You know, they're not. Yeah, let's talk about what are some of the, what are the, some of the assumptions. So, what kind of what kind of degrees of freedom does the researcher does the researcher have at a case like this? It's so, probably so you have you have to make a lot of choices. I mean, you know, at the at a very basic level, for instance, they have to you know you don't expect the epidemic. Other things being equal, you don't expect the epidemic to grow as fast everywhere, right? You know, for instance, uh, and, and you know this has been observed. You know, even before there was any policy enacted. Uh, before, you know, people started changing their behavior, et cetera, you can see that the, uh, what epidemiologists call the, the basic reproduction number, which roughly measures on average how many people a person who is infected is going to go on to infect, uh, in turn at the beginning of the epidemic. It wasn't the same everywhere. There was some pretty huge differences in the U.S. There was some really huge difference between, you know, counties, for instance, and even between states. Uh, so, one thing they have to do is say, okay, you can't assume that other things being equal, um, the epidemic is going to grow as fast everywhere. So you have to take that into account because if your model implicitly makes this assumption, it, it, it's going to be bad. So you have to include some confounders in your model, some, some variables, control for a variety of things in the hope that it will capture those differences between places that are totally independent from interventions or, I mean, they may interact with them, but like, Hopefully they don't, um, and uh, in, uh, independent of people's behavior, etc. You know, so for instance, uh, there is an easy case where you're gonna you're gonna want to control for population density because we expect that more dense in denser areas, the virus is going to be able to spread faster than in sparsely populated areas, right? But the problem is that you have to make so you know they control for this, they control for unemployment. The problem is that uh, we don't really understand. I mean, you know, we know that density, population density affects the spread of the virus, but even that is often not, the, the, the correlation is often not impressive. Um, in one of my uh, previous reports for CSPI, uh, my case against lockdown, I, I looked at um, the correlation between uh, population density in Europe and the number of deaths per capita, and it, it was basically there was none. Uh, so it's sometimes you're a bit surprised, but, and, you know, we, ex we expect that, you know, that's just because there has to be some confounding factors here. Uh, we expect, we expect that density is going to, is going to affect transmission, but there are a lot, we're sure there has to be a lot of other factors and, and mostly we don't know what they are. So they, they have to make a choice about what kind of variables are going to control for us as they use unemployment, uh, the poverty rates. Okay. You know, there are various things you can. Well, look, just going back to just going back to density, you don't know, for example, whether it's it's linear, right? If there's a linear relationship between density and uh, and the uh, reproduct and the reproduction rate, right? You don't know like whether different kinds of density matter, right? I mean, you know, yeah. uh, you have um, you know, you have like a you might have a a place where even you know within one community or county or state or whatever you're measuring, there's so much variation, right? There might be you know there there could be a state with you know low population density because there's a lot of rural areas and then there's like a few areas where everyone's uh you know uh packed together and then you can compare that to like a state or a county or whatever where it's more of an even distribution right and we it, and so this is just one variable this is just one variable and you have no idea the effect of the variable on the uh uh the outcome of interest right and this is just one yeah. of them right even if there weren't all those difficulties with this particular variable we nobody doubts you know there's absolutely no doubt that this is very far this one variable is very far from explaining 
the, the entire difference, you know, between different places. And, and so there are other factors and, and you have to make a choice about which one you're going to control for, but you don't really know, uh, you know, you don't really know which one you shoot. So they make some sensible choices, you know, I mean, like they, it, it makes sense to include the poverty rate, for instance, because you expect if there are more poor people, they tend to leave like to be more uh, numerous in their uh, uh, in their uh, apartments or houses, and so this facilitates transmission. Uh, okay, you know, but there are there are like a dozens of things you could include, and you know, they can for various reasons. You also don't want to uh, uh, put everything you possibly can because then it creates statistical difficulties. Um, so they have to make a choice, but really they have v- very little to go on. You know, on, on what they can base those choices, you know. I mean, there's, there are a few, like, obvious things like density, but beyond that, there are still, like, a lot of, once you have included d- densities, there's still a lot that remains to be explained. And, you know, we don't really know. So that's, that's just one example of, like, the kind of, uh, choices that you, assumptions you have to, and, you know, so the model, like, uh, implicitly assumes that those variables, those confounders that they included in the model, they're enough to explain to explain the entire difference between different places, uh, you know, between how fast the, the between how fast the epidemic is how in how fast the epidemic is growing, other things being equal. And you know, they know it's not true. They know that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and 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 the and it's only state level, right? It's it's it's, it's yeah. It's, state, it's at the state level. Yeah. Yes, you know, if, you know, those funny things about American uh, state level. If you just look at state level analysis, you'd think there would be a positive correlation between black population and uh, voting Republican, because the states, yeah, the, yeah. the states with the most black people, tend to vote the most Republican, right? And so, and so, you can see the problem here. <laughs> you're, you're dealing yeah, yeah. with. So, so you have, you have another paper forthcoming, but like the the the, the code and everything, it hasn't been published, accepted for publication yet, and we don't have the code and everything. But what they do, I mean, they, they look at less policies, etc. But like, but they but they do look at the they do use county level data, so we'll see what 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 happens with that. But uh, yeah, the, this one is like at the state level, and you're right. You know, this is this creates another. Uh, complication, you know, because you can have this sort of like what statisticians call uh, uh, ecological uh, correlation. They can be misleading. And the example you gave is, is a great one. You know, like if you look at the, the percentage of black population, you're going to, you may conclude that black people really vote uh, for the Republican Party a lot. But, you know, we know it's the opposite. They're like 90%, uh, 10 for the Democratic Party at the presidential election. So, um uh, but you know, it's just, that's just like a tiny, there are, there are many other uh, assumptions they make that I, I discussed, you know, in the, uh, yeah, you are very, people. you are very kind to them. It, it's like, it's like they have a building and all you need to find is like one flaw in the building for the whole thing to collapse. And you like go through, you in this, uh, report, you just go, you just go through it and you find a thousand, <laughs> but you know, if not problems, at least potential problems, right? The, yeah. You would yeah. Not, well, I mean, I, I think were, some of them are definitely not potential, but yeah. Uh, yeah. But, oh yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to this. Yeah. If this was yeah, a build, we'll, we'll, we we'll get to this. But you know, <laughs> but, but you know, when you, um, when we're talking about the model, look, you know, um, you know, when I said that they know that, for instance, those confounders, they don't explain all of the differences, other things being equal between places. Yeah, sure, they know it, but the hope, and, and you know, this is never the case. You, you never get a model that's going to be where the assumptions are exactly true. That, that's normal. There's nothing wrong with this. Uh, but, but you, you're hoping, you know, the hope is that it will get close enough to the truth that your estimates will be 
will be okay. You know, they will be right. fairly accurate. And my point is that the problem is that because we don't understand the the dynamic of of the of the epidemic well enough, in this case, uh, we we really we don't have enough like subject matter specific knowledge to to be confi- at all confident that this is the case. So this is different from your uh, from many other cases where you know uh, we have a fairly good understanding of the subject matter of the underlying subject matter. So we know that our model is not the assumptions are not exactly true. That you know the confounders we included in the model they don't they don't con- control for everything. But because we have a good understanding of the underlying subject matter, we can be fairly confident that it's close enough to the truth. Now, the problem here is that because we don't have a good enough understanding of, of the subject matter, because if we did, you know, we, we wouldn't be so puzzled by so many things about the pandemics, you know, why waves come and go when they do, how come like Japan is doing so relatively well when, you know, it seems that they're doing nothing compared to most uh, Western countries, you know, we're puzzled by so many things. And so clearly we don't have a good understanding of the subject matter. And when you don't have a good understanding of the underlying subject matter, you have no reason to to be confident that uh, uh, your the, the confounders, for instance, that you're including in your model, uh, they're actually good enough. You know? uh, and so that's a problem. This is through no fault of, of the authors, you know, because they can't be expected to uh, uh, solve the, you know, get us a good understanding of the underlying uh, subject matter, that the dynamic of epidemics, you know, which is something that we clearly don't understand very well, in my opinion. But, you know, it's still a fact, you know, that it's still a fact that, and, and I, I'm pretty sure this, they would, they would, uh, they would admit this, you know, and in fact, in the paper, uh, they do say that, you know, of course, you know, the hope is that this, uh, uh, this framework that they adopted allows them to recover causal effect. And in the right circumstances, it does allow to recover causal effects. Uh, but, but they do also note that, you know, we can't guarantee that those circumstances actually obtain. And, you know, we have, my point is, uh, given how little we know about the underlying subject matter and some other things that I discussed in the paper, uh, we have, um, uh, we have, we have no good reason to be very confident that, that the model is actually good enough, you know, for, for their purposes. But, yeah. you know, that's the best you can do. Uh, yeah. But you don't let, I mean, I wouldn't let them completely off the hook because, you know, they couldn't have done it better, but then maybe you shouldn't do it, right? Just because you can measure population density and po- percentage and, uh, you know, uh, percentage and poverty and these other things. Uh, and you don't know that those are the important, you know, the, the important variables, of all of them. The answer, I think, to that is not to do the analysis, right? It, it's not, it's at least, or at least not to do it this way, right? Because if you do it, you give the false idea. People take this stuff as, you know, people are amazed by, statistics and charts and graphs and numbers and credentials, right? So this MIT statistician comes out, he's got these models, he's got these uh, beautiful graphs, he's got these equations that, you know, 99.9% of people can't understand, right? And people are going to take that seriously. And people are going to, you know, adjust their adjust their ideas about the pandemic. And eventually policy is going to be influenced. And if it's as terrible as you say, and I, I think it is, this methodology is that bad, then you have an obligation not to do this stuff and not to put it out there into the world. That, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with this. I mean, and I do, cri- I, I do criticize the, the main author for a statement he, he made in the press about this study, which I think is extremely misleading, and maybe we'll get to this later. Uh, but, um, um, uh, you know, 
On the other hand, I understand that those people, you know, they have a career. They're it's kind of a game, you know, like they're part of this game, and this is how it works. And and I agree, you know, my 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 goal, one of my goals, you know, when I write this sort of things, is to to show to people, to explain to them why this is bad and why you know you can't really trust this sort of things. So my my view, I, I completely agree. You know, if, if you want my view about what what researchers should do. Yeah, mostly I think they should abstain from doing this sort of analysis on the thing. You know, one thing I argued on my uh, in my case against lockdowns is that I, I don't really think that we can, that it's even possible given the, the kind of data we have and the kind of understanding of the underlying subject matter we have, that it's possible to accurately estimate the effect of government interventions on the epidemic uh, precisely using all those complicated models, etc., I think the best we can do is use some very rough, you know, very simple graph, you know, basically eyeball a few graphs. And, and I think when you do this, you can reach the conclusion that, you know, I have no idea what the exact effect of government interventions is, but whatever the, the precise effect, it can't be huge. And that's about it, you know. And I think that if you try to go beyond this, you're just basically going to fool people or fool yourself often. Uh, yeah, but, it's, uh, it's, it's, because you're, you're going to give people, it's like you were saying, you're going to give people the illusion that you're, you have some kind of like special insight and like scientifically reliable way of figuring out what the effect of those interventions are when really you don't because the truth is that all of your estimates, uh, their, their, uh, truth, their accuracy depends on many, many assumptions that we not only have no way of of uh, verifying, but also often have very good reasons to think are false, or in some cases, know for a fact without any possible doubt are false. Yeah, the uh, you know, yeah, that that's I mean, that's all, yeah, very important. But the we should uh, we should say that you know, it's it's um, there you know, there are some I think we haven't even gone to the real real fatal flaws. In the paper, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, they ignored variable, uh, and then the fact that when you change around a few assumptions, you can get different results. So, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, what what we've discussed just now, it's 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 just run of the mill. You know, you do a, this kind of statistical work. This is you can never be sure that your model is is quite right, etc. This is always the case. You know, I think in this case, it's much worse because again, we we really don't have a good enough understanding of the underlying subject matter to be at all confident that it's at least good enough. Uh, but, you know, this still, in a way, this is still just run-of-the-mill uh, uh, difficulties, you know, that you have with that sort of work. And in fact, as I said, also in many ways, this paper is unusually sophisticated and much better than the rest of the literature on this topic. But then, you know, if you... If you look at the data, so what they do, you know, we should probably describe their uh, findings a little bit before I discuss, you know, um, what, what comes next. Uh, you sure. know, what they find is that um, those those policies, those non-pharmaceutical interventions, so again, stuff like mandating face masks for employees in uh, uh, public-facing businesses, closing schools, um, closing non-essential businesses, stay out of orders, um uh, they find that they had a, a fairly large effect on, on the, the number of cases and the number of deaths. Uh, so, you know, for instance, for the, the, their headline results is the result about masks, because that's the one which is the most robust in their analysis. The other results, especially the one, the one about schools, they, they actually say themselves that they don't really trust it, uh, because, uh, basically what happened is that in the US, 
all states close schools within a week, within the same week, basically. So you had very little variation in the data and all of those statistical techniques, you know, in order to estimate the effect of policies, there needs to be some variations in the data. So if you don't have variation, you, you can't really do it. And so for schools, they say, okay, we, we don't really take seriously any of the uh, conclusions uh, of our model about schools because, you know, the, the, depending on the specification of the model, the, um, uh, the, the conclusion of the model is, is like all over the place. And this is exactly what you would expect given the lack of variation in the data. But for the other policies, especially the one on the mass mandates, they find like a, a really large effect. So for the mass mandate, for instance, uh, they estimate that had all states um, uh, mandated uh, employees in public-facing businesses to wear masks on March 14th, uh, it would have saved between 11 and 45,000 people lives uh, by the end of May. So, so that's like between 10 and 45%. Uh, that's a between a 10 and a 45% reduction in, in mortality caused by the epidemic. So that's, that's, that's mm-hmm. a lot. You know, it's all... In, uh, if you look at the the highest uh, uh, estimate, that's like almost half of the death could have been saved by by doing that. Mm. And, and you know, I mean, I, I just want to say first, like before I I get to the some of the nasty details, that you know, I mean, who believes that? Who believes that uh, if you just because like if if you had mandated. Uh, employees in uh, public-facing businesses, not everyone, just employees in public-facing business. We'll, we'll go back to this later because this is going to be important. Yeah. Uh, you could have you could have saved almost half. You could have reduced the number of deaths by almost half. I mean, come on. you know, It's just like it doesn't pass a basic smell test, right? But so, you know, given that it doesn't pass a, a basic smell test, you, you start looking at the details. So that's what I did. Um, the thing is, like I said, you know, when you put together this kind of model, you have to make a lot of assumptions and there are lots of choices that you make and you can make equally reasonable or sometimes even more reasonable choices and you might get different results. So my logic was like, okay, let's, because in the paper, they only, they only look at a handful of specifications of the model. Uh, so, you know, a specification is just one version of the model that includes certain assumptions, whereas a different specification is another version of the model that uh, is based on different. Yeah. Assumptions. So, for example, like what what variables you include? Uh, how many? I think one of them is uh, how, how the lag between um, uh, yeah, yeah. policy and and when you when the uh, test results come back when you find out that uh, there are more infections. Um, and so, yeah, yeah that's just one example. And another example. So, I said that you know, I said that they are taking into account the fact that people change their behavior in in response to information about the epidemic, and so one. Uh, one, one decision you have to make when you put together this model is, okay, what do we assume that, what, what information do we assume that people use to adjust their behavior? Do they use uh, information on the number of cases in their states or do they use the information on number of cases at the national level, nationally? Or do, you, do they use information about the number of deaths but not the number of cases? Or do they use both? Do they use the number of cases the information about the number of cases and the number of deaths. And if they do so, do they use information about the number of cases and deaths only at the state level or at the national level? And you, you have many co- different combinations, and we don't really know, you know. I mean, who knows exactly how what, what information people use to to adjust their behavior. Uh, and, and, you know, as I, you know, you could say, okay, let's just throw everything into the model. But, you know, that's not really a, 
uh, a great solution because it causes statistical problems when you have too many things in your model. So, you know, uh, the, the bottom line is you have to make this kind of decision and you don't really know what's the right model. Okay. What's the right specification? Should I use, should I assume that people only use information about cases in their state or should I assume that they use uh, both information on cases and death in their state and nationally? So we don't know yet. Yeah, and even, know. even, I mean, just to go back to something, the, even the, uh, how they, uh, measure the policy within each state, there, there will be like differences within, uh, across counties in the state, right? Or yeah, across yeah, counties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's another problem, you know. <laughs> There's so much. Yeah, when, when do you, when do you decide, you know, that enough counties, you know, I mean, in some cases, there was a, a statewide policy that was enacted, but in some cases, you know, it was done on a county by county basis. How, when, how do you decide when exactly you must assume that uh, the policy was in, was, uh, uh, in place in the whole state, uh, because, you know, again, you, you're, you're using data at the state level. You can't go below this. So you have to make some assumptions about when the policy is in state and in place and when, when it's not in place. And, you know, so you have to make all sorts of semi-arbitrary decisions like this. And, 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 and you can, and so you have really a lot of possible combinations of different specification of the model that are different that may result in, may lead to different conclusions, but are equally reasonable, you know, because again, we don't know what the right model is. So my approach was like, okay, you know, given that we don't know what the right model is, let's look at a fairly large range of reasonable, plausible models. You know, I don't know which one is the right one. Uh, I mean, in fact, I'm pretty sure there is not a single one that is a right, there is not a right one, but you know, which is the best or which are the best? I don't know. So I'm looking at a fairly large range of possible specification of the model. I end up with something like 252 uh, different specifications. And I don't think you can really say, you can really rule out uh, any of those specifications a priori. I mean, different people may make different judgment calls on this. And, you know, maybe some people are going to get like, uh, 300 specifications in, instead of 250, or some people are going to get 200 or even 150. But, you know, I tried different combinations. It didn't really affect the conclusion anyway, so it doesn't really matter. The point is, we don't know which is the right model, which models are best. So my approach is like, okay, let's look at, at all of the specification that's based on the little understanding we have of the underlying subject matter uh, seem more or less equally plausible. And let's see if the results of the analysis of the authors is affected a lot by which model we look at. And, and when you do this, you find that even that the effects, you know, it, it does change a lot, you know. So depending on which specification you use, you can get vastly different results. Like the, uh, the effect size can be extremely much larger and is going to be much larger in some specification than others. The effect is going to be uh, statistically significant in, significant in some specifications, but not in others. It makes a lot of differences, a lot of difference. And so I do this systematically, much more systematically than they do in the paper, because in the paper, as in most papers, they just look at a handful of specification. Then later they have some sensitivity analysis where they do some fancy stuff, but you know, you don't even need to do this fancy stuff. Um, uh, you can, you can already show that the effects disappear or are vastly reduced or vastly increased depending on, on, uh, by making like relatively small tweaks to the most, most basic model they use. And, and so when I do this, I find that depending on what specification you use, the effect is all over the place. 
Sometimes it's going to be statistically significant, sometimes not. In fact, for, you know, if you look at the, just by uh, changing the specification of the model, it's very easy. There is not a single effect, not even the one on math of, of the, the mass mandate that is statistically significant in uh, every case or almost every case, you know. For instance, in, um, uh, in the case of the mandate of mass, when I use the, the same version of the data set that they use for the paper, in the paper, for the paper, I find that even the effect of mask, uh, which, you know, was the most robust in their analysis, it's still only significant in 78% of specifications, I think. So, you know, there's still like more than a fifth of specification in which the effect is not statistically significant. So, you know, that shouldn't, doesn't inspire great confidence, but, you know, it's about to get a lot worse. Yeah, well, 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 they do. I mean, what, what, uh, what they do in these academic papers is funny because they say they do the sensitivity analysis. So like you said, you know, there's 250 of them. And so they'll present a main model and they'll say there's a statistically uh, significant effect. And then they have 200 more to choose from, right? And so they say, I have this sensitivity analysis. I did, you know, A, B, C, D, and E, right? And, you know, there's still statistically significant results. <laughs> but, you know, there's yeah, 220 yeah. more things, 250 more things you could have done. And yeah, then you... I, <laughs> exactly. I, I think it's, I think it's a big problem in general. So this is like true in, in, uh, statistical research in general is that people don't do, they don't, they don't do sensitivity, sensitivity analysis in a systematic enough fashion. Uh, really. Uh, what you want to do is like, you don't want to, you want to decide before you even look at the results. Okay. What, what specification can I rule out and, and which one I can't even, I can't rule out because I just, I'm not in a position to say that this one is, is not actually better than another one that, uh, I was going to include initially. So you have, and if you do this, I think if you do this, you're going to get a lot more specification than people usually do, but like they don't want to, re- to report, you know, usually you have a table. And you have room for four specification. And of course, it, you know, they're going to tend to choose, they want to get published. They're going to tend to choose the specification that were, that find the statistically significant effect. Uh, this leaves a lot of room for this kind of nonsense. Uh, it would be much better if, if people, you know, if, if, if journals, I mean, it would be much better if there were no journals and no pre-publication peer review, but that's a story for another time. Uh, but you know, if you're going to have journals, then they should insist on more systematic sensitivity analysis and, and they should just, just have the sort of tables that I have in the, in the blog post where I summarize, you know, in what percentage of cases the effect is statistically significant in those 252 uh, specification. Uh, what's the mean if, uh, point estimate of the effects? What's the range of point estimates? You know, so people can get a sense. The point is that what's the reason why I do that? I want to give a sense to people on how much of how much the um, the conclusion that you derive from your model depends on the specific assumptions you include in the model. You make you base the model on, and if if your results are robust, it shouldn't change much. You know, you can change the assumptions, etc., um, and it won't. the The results are going to resu- are going to stay roughly the same. Uh, and if that's the case, you know, if that's the case, then, you know, yes, you can, you can be fairly confident. I mean, it depends on the situation, you know, but, um, in some cases, at least, if that's the case, you can be fairly confident that you, your conclusion is actually accurate. But if that's not the case, given that you have no way of discriminating between the, those specifications, then you shouldn't be confident in any of the, in the conclusion of any of them. 
maybe the effect is real in large. Okay, that's possible. I mean, it, it's the case in some of those specifications, but maybe there is no effect. In fact, maybe the effect is positive, as, as you find for some of them in some cases. So, um, when you, when you, you know, the, the point is, it's important to give a sense to people of how sensitive your conclusions are to semi-arbitrary assumptions that you make. Because if they're very sensitive to this and it actually changes qualitatively, not just quantitatively, your conclusions, then you shouldn't be going out and talking to journalists and telling them that, oh, yeah, you have totally shown that uh, such and such a policy had such and such an effect. You, know, you haven't shown this, if, if this is the case. And this is the case here, in this case. Yeah, I mean, you have this beautiful table uh, that shows, you know, different specifications for different variables. The percent, you know, the percent of the time that it's significant, depending on how many models, you know, different models you use. And sometimes they're significant in a positive direction. So the, uh, the, whatever the intervention is will actually make cases, uh, increase, right? I mean, so yeah, yeah. It, it's really all over the place. And of course, you're not gonna, you're not gonna run with those models if you're an academic, but let's get, let's get to the worst thing, right? The, yeah. I mean, if the people who've stuck with us this long, they've stuck with us, you know, 40 minutes through a pretty technical, uh, conversation. I think this is a, this is a quite the payoff. And I think anyone can understand this. Uh, so talk about the, the mask mandates and the different kind of variables they have and what you found um yeah so um so i let, let me just want add one thing before i get to the really juicy part because I, it's, it's also important you know one thing i, I did is that it's, i didn't just look at different specifications of the model it's what happened though is that the between the time they submitted their paper and the time it was published the data for both cases and deaths were revised and 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 when you use the revised data where various errors have been fixed, et cetera, uh, then it's even worse. Then in that case, you know, the, most of the time, the effect of mask, it, it becomes significant, uh, less than half of the time. In fact, when you use the latest version of the data set, it's almost never significant. So it completely changes the picture, uh, just because, you know, the data that they've used, uh, have changed, you know, since they've undergone revisions since they submitted the paper. And, and now, you know, if it, it makes their own analysis completely outdated because when you use more recent uh, version of the data, uh, even the effect of, of mask, of mandating masks for employees in public facing businesses completely goes away. It's, you know, it's not even that we're not talking here about, you know, it's only significant in 78% of cases. No, it's just like, it's, it almost never is, you know. So, uh, so that's, that's another big thing, you know, where in this case, it's just the, uh, the data have changed and, you know, uh, the, the peer review process and the journal's editorial process is, is very long. And between the time the paper was submitted and the time it was published, um, their main result was completely obsolete. Because if you, if you had done the same analysis as I did using up to date data, it's no, the effect is no longer there. Uh, that's one thing. And then I'm going to get to the really juicy part, which is the one that you, uh, you were alluding to. So, one thing that's really surprising, I alluded to it too earlier, uh, is that they didn't look at the effect of mandating masks for everyone. They looked at the effect of mandating masks for employees of public-facing businesses. So we're talking about like a tiny fraction of the population and uh, a tiny fraction of all uh, human interactions that, that happen every day. So again, it's like only employees in public-facing businesses. And they find that this has a lot, a very large effect. Uh, wow. 
which, as I said before, isn't really plausible, and it's even less plausible when you look at the detail, because, you know, remember that I said that one of the nice things about their model is that it allows you to distinguish uh, between the effect of voluntary behavior changes and the, the, the effect of policy. But another nice thing is that for the effect of policy, it allows you to distinguish between the direct effect of policy. So in the case of the mass mandate, the direct effect of policy is that when, when employees put a mask in front of their mouth, uh, it blocks the various virus particles and prevents them from infecting other people. That's the direct effect. But then those, this policy and other policies, they could also have a, an indirect effect, which is that, you know, it's possible that, for instance, uh, when people see employees start start wearing uh, start wearing masks, you know, in uh, in businesses, uh, it makes them scared. They're like, "Oh, this thing is serious." You know, if uh, if, if employees starts uh, are mandating to wear a mask, you know, this this is some serious stuff, and so they change their behavior. So, okay, maybe I'm not going to throw this party tonight with my friends, right? Because that's that doesn't look like a great idea. If, you know, you see this all this stuff going on, and so this is an indirect effect of of policy, and when you look at their results, it's not just that they find a very large effect of mandating masks for employees in public-facing businesses, which, as I noted before, doesn't really pass a basic smell test, but it's also that they find that this effect is entirely driven by uh, the direct effect. So, you know, this is even less plausible. I mean, come on, who seriously believes? Even I, I do think that masks work you know, to some extent. I think that they do, uh, that if someone puts a mask in front of their mouth, they're making it less likely that they're going to infect other people and less likely that they're going to be infected if they're exposed to someone who has been infected. But, you know, again, we're talking about a tiny number of people here, only employees in public-facing businesses, who are only are only involved in like a tiny fraction of the human interaction that happen every day. So how large could the direct effect is? To the extent that this policy has any effect, we'd expect that it would be mostly indirect. That is that the mechanism would be the one I just described, you know, where people start seeing employees wearing masks and they get scared and it, they change their behaviors in, in other ways. And this has a large effect on, on, on uh, transmission. But if you look at their results, they say, no, no, it had a very large effect and the effect was entirely due to the direct, direct effect. Uh, and this really isn't plausible. But it's and what makes it again what makes it particularly implausible is that we're just talking about employees of public-facing businesses, and so when I saw this, I was like, "This is really weird." You know, I mean, there wasn't even a there wasn't, as far as I can tell, there wasn't any controversies about this kind of mandate because, which makes sense, you know, the only concern with tiny again a tiny number of people. And I was like, you know, why didn't they look at the at the at mandates that mandating masks for everyone in public spaces? Not just employees of public-facing businesses, but everyone. If you're in a public space, you have to wear a mask. You know, that's those are the kind of mask mandates that uh, people have been focusing on. You know, where about which there's been a lot of d- debate, etc. Um, and, and so I thought that was weird. And what I found out when I was digging into their code and the the data they used, I found out that actually they had a variable coding for this policy, for this this kind of much broader uh, mask mandate. And, and when you, and I was like, oh, that's, that's weird, you know, and like, um, so what I did is that I did the same analysis they did, but instead of using the variable for the mandates, uh, that was only for employees of public facing businesses, I used the variable that was for mandating masks for everyone. 
And when I do this, I find that there is no effect. At least there is no statistically significant. <laughs> yeah. So they're saying, you know, just putting, just mandating employees um, of public facing business to, to wear a mask, you know, while they're at work, this has a very large effect and it's statistically significant. Uh, it reduces both cases and death. But then when I do the same analysis using the, a much broader mandate that we'd expect to have, I mean, if the first mandate has an effect, this one should be much larger, right? I mean, just, it's just, it's, it's just basic common sense. And then when I do the same analysis on this much broader policy, I find no effect. And, and you know, it kind of totally undermines even their results about the, um, about the, the mandate that only targets employees of public facing businesses. I mean, it makes no sense. Like it's, this mandate is not going to have a very large effect if the much broader mandate that, uh, involves everyone is not, doesn't have any, uh, statistically significant effect. In fact, it's not just that the result is not statistically significant. It's also that the point estimate of the effect, the, their estimation of the effect is, um, is smaller than for the other men. I mean, it's just, none of this makes any sense. Um, and, and what's extraordinary is that, uh, they didn't do this in the paper. You know, they just totally ignored this variable, which when, when, you know, most of the controversy about mask has been about, has been about those kind of mandates, you know, universal mandates. Nobody cares what, uh, uh, employees of public facing business are, are you know, they're forced to wear a mask. You know, that's not what people are uh, fighting about. Uh, and, and so, so, you know, this is pretty, uh, pretty surprising. What's even more surprising that at some point in the paper, there's a footnote where there's, they, they do note this and not, you know, by the way, uh, let's be clear. We're only talking about, we're only evaluating the effect of mandating masks for employees of public facing businesses. We're not evaluating the effect of mandating masks for everyone in public spaces. And then they go on to speculate based on some other papers, uh, and some like, uh, you know, quick and dirty calculation that um, the the effect could be like an order of magnitude larger of, of this other policy. But I mean, come on, you had you had the data to check, you know? and when you do, there is no effect, or you know, at least no statistically significant effect, and even the point estimate is, is smaller. So I mean, come on, it's just like uh, it's just very bad, you know. And I mean, I, I talked so I talked to one of the authors, right? I emailed them, and and one of them, uh, Paul Shrimps, replied to me. So. Um, I mean, at least he was very responsive, so I, I can't criticize him for this. And what he explained to me, he explained something that makes sense, to be full, completely fair, that, that part of it makes sense. Um, uh, he explained that this is a decision they made early when they started working on the paper, because at the time, there was more states that had, um, there was few states who had mandating, who had mandated masks for everyone, and there was like more states who had done so for employees in public facing businesses. And, and even by the end of the period, there was like more than twice as many states who had mandating masks for employees in public facing businesses than states that had mandating masks, had mandating masks for, uh, everyone in public spaces. And so given that this is the case, you expect that the effect is going to be harder to detect. Yeah. Well, you expect that it's going to be harder to detect other things being equal, but we don't expect other things being equal because we expect that the effect of the universal mandate is going to be much larger. So even if it's present in less states, it should still be 
probably easier to detect than the other one, at least as easy, I would say. I mean, we have no way to know for sure. But my point is that that's, I don't think that's a really good reason. I don't think, you know, by the way, like in, for the record, I don't think Paul Schrems disagrees with this because he did concede in his reply that, uh, by the time they were done by the paper, it would, it would have made sense to use this variable instead of the other one or in addition to the other one. So I, I don't think even them would, um, would deny this, you know, that, that really it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you, if you do this, if you look at it, then the, um, the, the, the effect disappears. And, and I think this completely undermines the whole, uh, their headline conclusion, which again was about this, uh, uh mandate on, uh, employees uh, in public facing businesses. They have another paper. He told me also when I, when I emailed him, he told him they have another paper. They use data at the county level and it's, it's not focused on masks. It's focused on schools. Yeah. But they do, they, they do look, they use the different data set on masks and apparently they do find an effect that's for the universal mask mandate that's consistent with, uh, what they found in this paper. But you know, it's, uh, I haven't been able, like, the code is not available. The paper hasn't been published yet, uh, hasn't been accepted for publication in the paper. There's a preprint. Uh, and I expect that, you know, if I, if I did the same thing, like looking at different specifications, exactly the yeah. same thing would happen. And anyway, as we'll discuss soon, the, the entire framework is probably deeply flawed anyway. So, but. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just bad to that, uh, I, I think one thing I do blame them a lot for is they could have looked at this, at this, at universal mandates in this uh, paper and not only did they not, but they even speculated that it would be, it might be very large when they had the data to just check and it takes five minutes to do it. So, I mean, in fact, honestly, I have a hard time believing they haven't done so, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, even, and even if you find a result, like, you know, setting aside all this stuff, I mean, even if you find a result, uh, you still haven't done the cost benefit to say if it's worth it, right? Uh, so you yeah, have, absolutely. You, that, that's a different mm-hmm. question. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I mean, there's so much. There's just so so much that's wrong here. Uh, you know, I think you know it's worth. Uh, yeah, I think people can you know check out the check out the post if you know they're interested. It's very technical, um, but you'll learn something. I mean, the point is like you know. It, it, so what you're doing here is. You're not taking, you're not just taking apart one paper for the sake of taking apart one paper, right? There's a broader lesson, you know, so if you, if you just say, you know, who cares about this one paper I never heard of, you know, why would I go look at this take down of this paper, which I don't think is that important? Uh, you know, what would you say to somebody who says that? Cause the, the, the justification for looking at how terrible things can go, there's a broader lesson here, right? Yes. Yes. There's a broader lesson to what we've already discussed, uh, because um, the the problem, you know, that uh, often results are sensitive to semi-arbitrary assumptions that are made by the authors of the paper. This is not limited to this paper. This is ubiquitous. And it's very, very important that people understand that because they have to understand that whenever you try to uh, study a question like this, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be about the pandemic. This is, again, ubiquitous. You always have, you have to, you make statistical, you do statistical analysis of anything. You're going to have to make like dozens or even hundreds of decisions at different steps of the, different steps of the process. And those decisions, very often, it's not as if there's going to be a right decision. There's not going to be an objectively right uh, decision to make. You know, 
at various steps, there are different choices you could make, different choices, and they're equally reasonable. Given your, given your background knowledge, you have no way to, to say that one choice would be superior to the other. But by making the rights, and I'm putting rights in scare quotes here, choices, uh, trying different possibility, you can ensure that you get the results you want. Or even, you know, if you don't do it on purpose, you may find results that are one thing, but if you had made different but equally reasonable choices at various steps of the process, you would have found, you would have found completely different results. And so this is very important to understand because it means that unless you take steps to make sure that, um, you are not just looking at a handful of possible and equally plausible specification, but you're actually looking at a, the whole range of them, or at least enough of them, you can't really be confident that your conclusions are correct. And this would also be true, by the way, if they had found that uh, um, the, the interventions had no effect or even that they had like, uh, that they actually made things worse. I would have said the same thing in regard to this, you know, like, uh, this, so this is a very important lesson. And yeah, sure, you may not care about this particular paper, but I think what, what I think is important, the reason why I wrote this piece is that if you want to people to really understand how dramatic the consequences of this fact, the fact that whenever you study, you do statistical analysis, you have to make all those choices and they're semi-arbitrary and you end up with lots of different possibilities and that can affect the result of lot. You have to look, there is no way of, of of convincing yourself of that, of how much it matters, than by looking at a case study and looking very concretely in a specific case how those seemingly innocent choices that are clearly semi-arbitrary can end up, you know, when you compound them, end up making like huge differences and, and you know, difference. That's, that means that different people looking at the same data with the same empirical strategy could, could, could find like completely different conclusions. And you couldn't say that one of them did something very wrong and not the other. It's just that they made different choices, different but equally reasonable choice, choices at different steps of the process. And because those different choices compounded, in the end, they ended up uh, finding completely different, reaching completely different conclusions. Uh, and this is, I think this is a very important lesson. And, you know, uh, this is not about like, this is not a case of being like hyper skeptical, you know. Again, this is not, this is not that. It's an objective fact. It's not, you know, I'm not exaggerating when I say that those choices, uh, although different and leading to different conclusions, they're equally reasonable based on your background knowledge. You can't really say that one is better than the other. And so if your results are sensitive to this, um, to, to those choices, then you can't really be confident in your, in your results, you know, because you have no reason to prefer one specification to any of the other others that are equally plausible based on your background knowledge. So this is a very important lesson. It's more like a, a matter of epistemology. So it's more my thing, you know, as in like originally a philosopher of science. Um, it, it's, uh, you, you have, you know, you're not in a position when this is the case to be confident in any of the particular, the only way you're going to be able to be confident in your conclusions is if, if you look at all of the equally plausible specification you get by making all of the possible choice, I mean, you can never look at all of the possible choices because there are infinitely many, but, uh, you can look at a broad enough French. If you do this and you find that it doesn't affect your, your conclusion stays the same qualitatively. Of course, quantitatively is never going to be exactly the same in different specification, but if it stays the same, 
qualitatively, that is, if you find in all cases in this so in this example, for instance, if you had found that in all cases, no matter what specification you use, uh, such and such a policy reduced roughly by that much uh, the number of cases, the number of the, the growth rate in cases, growth rate of death, then you could have been confident in the conclusion. But you can't if that's not the case. And in beyond the study, this is again, this is ubiquitous. There. Are, I, I, the vast major in the vast majority of studies on any topic, again, it's not just the pandemic. You're gonna have it, it, you know the those arbitrary decisions that you make. Uh, they're they're gonna change complete. Potentially, they can completely change the conclusion you reach at, in the end. And so, it's very important to understand this. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's uh, yeah, I mean the. You know, and what you said about you know you can look at the same data and you can find completely different results. So what happens in practice in practic- practicality, right? Uh, what gets ends up getting published? What how do people cut the data? They end up finding the political results that they want, right? They find the thing that is, accords with their ideology, right? So if you are you know uh, uh, you want uh, uh, you are for, for whatever reason more inclined to COVID lockdowns to non pharmaceutical interventions, and the data is sort of it can tell you what you want to hear, and there's you know eight eight out of ten say academics uh, want more lockdowns, that's what they want to find. They're going they, you know they're going to find that eight out of ten times, not even taking into account. Uh, the file drawer effect, right? The fact that uh, results yeah, yeah. that actually find something are more likely to get published than results that don't find something. And so this is why science... Yeah, yeah. You, you, you have to find the right... I mean, you know, look, those people, they, they have careers, you know, you want to, to pub, you know, publish or perish. You have to publish if you want to have a, a career in academia, uh, if you want to get, like, uh, rewards, you know, uh, fellowships, uh, uh, nice jobs, etc. You You want to publish in good journals. And if you say, you know, as you say, if you say that the vast majority of of, um, of uh, scholars in your field uh, are um, um, biased in favor of lockdowns, uh, not even necessarily consciously, but even even unconsciously, you're gonna have a strong, you're gonna have strong incentives to make the choices. You know, when you make all those semi-arbitrary choices, you're gonna have strong incentives to even convince yourself that those purely arbitrary choices that you made were actually the reasonable ones. And, you know, oh, it just happens to be that those are the choices that that allow you to find that lockdowns are really effective. Uh, but, you know, uh, if you want to get published, if you want to have a good career, the incentives are really for you to do this. And again, I'm not even saying that they're dishonest. I think often they, to the extent that they lie, they lie to themselves more often than not. Uh, but, but, and you know, this, we're, we're using the example of lockdowns here, but that's the same for, for everything. I mean, you know, uh, if you find, if you're an economist and you, and you, and you do a paper, you know, on whether, uh, immigration has an effect on wage, for instance, on the wages of, of natives, uh, I can guarantee you that it's easier for you. You're going to make your life easier if you find that it doesn't, or even that it makes it, that it increases the wages of, uh, uh, of of natives, but whatever you know, you can you can you can find it. You can find like you can find hundreds of examples. Just like first one that came to mind. Um, uh, my point is that uh, given that the, on the one hand you have very strong incentives to publish certain kinds of results, and as you said in the first place, you have to incentives to publish results. You know, like if you find there is no effect already, you know, even if it's true, it's less likely that you'll get published. 
But even as you say, if you put that aside, you have strong incentives to find some certain effects. And then you also, there's also the situation where at, at each step of, of the process, when you're putting together your model, you have to make lots of, or even preparing the data, because it's not just about the, the model itself. It's even worse than that. It's even when you, how you prepare the data exactly, you have lots of choices involving there. But at each step of the process, you have to make various choices. And, you know, objectively, given the back, your background knowledge, uh, there is not one that's uh, indisputably superior to the others. So you can, you have lots of possibilities. You know, uh, Andrew Gelman is a statistician. He calls that the, the garden of fork and path. Uh, okay, you have all those possibilities. At, at each step, you know, you have a, a fork and path. You, you can take right or you can take left. And you, you don't really have, like in, in the sort of cases that I find most interesting, you don't really have, given your background knowledge or a clear reason to prefer right to left or left to right. Uh, but if you add to this the fact, so this means that you can get very different specification that may get you very different results. If you have incentives to find certain results, then it creates the risk that you're going to make those choices that happen to lead you to the rights, again, in scare quotes, conclusions, uh, which is the ones, which are the ones that are maximizing the chance that you're going to get published in a good journal that your colleagues are going to talk about and, and talk in a good way about your papers and promote it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, near the end of the paper, I mean, you say something, uh, you, you write, you know, even without looking at the detail of a study, you should be very suspicious of any claim based on sophisticated statistical techniques that can't already be made plausible by just showing the data in a simple chart. So, you know, what you're saying here is pretty profound. So there's, you learn statistics and we, you, you know, we use statistics for different reasons. And we, what it sounds like you're saying is there is some basic statistics, you know, right? You know what hypothesis testing is. You know how to read a regression table. You can read a graph and you know figures and you can you can tell what's going on there's there's that level of statistical literacy right um and then the, but the, if you're a professor of statistics or even a professor of economics or political science or some field that uses statistics to justify sort of your job you have to use something more sophisticated you can't just do something that any blogger could do right any blogger with you know basic intelligence and, ba- and some basic statistical training and ability to think reasonably is you know so it is is I guess uh, you know what I want to know is is the whole sort of the idea of sophisticated statistics right beyond I mean and and you know when I mean sophisticated I mean the highest level not like you know the first few courses you le- you take in graduate school but like the stuff you you know the highest level uh, PhD uh, economists uh, professors at elite institutions the stuff that that they're doing uh, is that stuff just just worthless does it have any value at all is is it just you know obfuscation and you know uh hiding for you know studies that are poorly done like this or do you think there's you know any way to redeem these things i think i think there is some value but i think the value is mainly the real value in my opinion is mainly that this is those techniques uh, allow you to become more confident in something that you were already pretty sure was true so in this case i think yes that can be useful but to go back to the, the, the passage of my, uh, blog post that you just quoted, um, this is the key thing, you know, like, look, what you really have to understand, because for most people, those statistical techniques are kind of voodoo magic. Um, what you really have to understand is that those, uh, statistical techniques, they always make pretty strong assumptions. And those assumptions, they are not derived from the data. 
basically you have to make a bet that those assumptions are true. And sometimes you have good reasons to think they are, but very often you have no clue. So you're making a bet. And the point is that those very comp- complicated, sophisticated statistical techniques, they will allow you to answer the question you're asking only on the assumptions that those things are true. And very often you're not really in a position to know they're true. So what I'm saying is that because, uh, you, and you know, in fact, I'm making a stronger claim. Like if you, if you can't make, you know, you use this complicated statistical technique and you find uh, a certain result. And my point is, if you can't make this result, this conclusion plausible by just showing the data in a simple chart, if the authors can't do that, then you shouldn't be confident in the result. You should take it always with a huge grain of salt and regard it with the utmost suspicion because in almost all cases, you have far more reason to trust what you can see on a simple chart that just shows the data than you have reason to trust that those assumptions that are on which those statistical techniques rest to deliver uh, accurate results are actually true. So... In my opinion, the, I'm not saying those techniques have no value. I do think they have some value, but I think their value uh, is much more modest than people assume. Their value is basically, okay, if I have this, I have this causal story, you know, I have this story about like this, say, for instance, this policy has such and such effect. Okay. And say that I can, I can show you, a, I can just show the, the data on a graph, on a simple chart. And when you look at this simple chart where there was no fancy statistics involved, no uh, transform- complex transformation of the data, et cetera, et cetera, you look at this chart and you're like, yeah, okay, you know what? Your your causal story, it kind of makes sense. You know, I, I can see it on the chart. If you see it on the chart, you know, then you're in a position where you're like, okay, yeah, I, I can sort of buy this story. And then the value of those complicated statistical techniques, in my opinion, is that when you're in this situation, if in addition, when you're using this complicated, those complicated statistical tools and they find the same conclusion on what you can already see on this simple chart, then, you know, this should, it should raise your credence, your confidence that this conclusion is indeed true. So, you know, it's not as if it had no value whatsoever, but I think the value is much more modest than, than most people who uh, promote this kind of statistics would, would, would think, you know. Uh, because in, in many cases, it's simply not the case that you have, you, you can make the story, the conclusion of your complicated statistics plausible with a simple chart. And yeah. That's not the case, you know. I, you know, in some cases, we have good reasons to think that the assumptions on which those techniques rest are true. So in those cases, that's another case where they have value. Because, you know, if you have good reasons to think that the assumptions on which they rely are actually true, then okay, then you you can tr- kind of trust the conclusion. But again, this is I don't think this is the majority of cases. Yeah, well, I mean, what you're saying is sort of the opposite of you know the incentive structure in academia. What you're saying that the fancy stuff is the least valuable uh, kind of work, and in academia, it's the most valuable. I had a, a professor who was teaching a graduate course in statistics once who said, you know, this you know you have to do this fancy stuff. This is what sells. What doesn't sell is truth. Nobody cares about that. If you're a guy who goes and just finds, you know, charts that put them together and, you know, you put them together and you explain the world, 
Uh, you know, you can't publish that as an academic paper. Nobody cares. I mean, I, I think about my, uh, you know, maybe the article that got most attention of anything I ever written is why everything is liberal, right? And yeah. there's no fancy statistics. There's no nothing. Yeah. I think that I found something very important. Um, I used some basic statistics and, you know, uh, uh, tracked down some data, not really statistics, just, you know, presenting data that other people have done. And I think it said something important and people found it fascinating. That couldn't get into any academic journal just because it's not fancy enough, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And this is just such a huge problem. The, the academic work has the prestige and like bloggers and people who do, tweet, uh, you know, Twitter threads and people who have sub stacks, you know, do not have, do not have the prestige, but, just because something is the most complicated way to do something doesn't mean it's the best way to do something. And that's sort of, that's the way academia thinks that it's absolutely terrible. Is it not? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a deep and very important point. There is really like the, 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 the incentives in academia are cross purposes with uh, uh, what we like to think of as the goal of academia is what we think should be the goal of, of, uh, of science which is, you know, getting at the truth. And I think, I think this is true. You know, you want to, I mean, the two are not necessarily incompatible, but in practice, like I said, it's, you know, because you could, you could conceivably, uh, write a paper and, you know, those papers exist. You know, I've read some where people start by presenting the data in a simple chart and they say, okay, look, it looks like this is already making my, my conclusion plausible. And then they go on to use like fancy statistics to, uh, make the claim more believable. And that's, this is perfectly fine, you know, but, um, very often that's not what happens. You know, like you said, there is a, there is a, there are strong incentives to use, you know, fancy statistics and it doesn't, you know, people know those people are, you know, at, at least most of the top researchers, they, 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 they know that those statistical techniques, uh, they're only reliable in if, if their assumptions are true and that often you, we don't really know if they're true. They're aware of this. Uh, but, it doesn't, most of the times it doesn't really matter. You know? Like they, they, uh, what matters is like the performance. It's kind of, there's, there's, in, in many ways, academia is like kabuki theater. You, you go through the motion, you go through the motions and, uh, you have, you have a certain script that you have to follow. And if you follow the script, the right script, you're going to get published and your career is going to move forward. Um, but you know, that script is not really truth conducive. That's not really what, um, you know, we'd hope that uh, institutions of scientific institutions and academic institutions would be set up in such a way that they're truth conducive. But that's, that's, I don't think that's really the case. I mean, you know, they are minimally so. I don't want to say, you know, like we have, yeah. uh, it, it depends on the field. You know, I think there are some fields where it's literally not even a little bit truth conducive. But I don't think it's the case of, uh, of uh, all fields. There are some where it's, it's it's somewhat truth conducive, but uh, not nearly as much as it should and as it could, because those incentives get in the way. The incentives are cross cross purposes with this goal of getting at the truth, and then uh, this uh, taste for like uh, fancy, you know, sophisticated statistics. Uh, that's that's definitely a part of it. It's, it's hardly the only thing, but like it's it's definitely a, a part of it. And, and you're right that in this respect, what I was saying about how you know. First thing you should do is like convince me of your conclusion with a simple chart. And if you can't do that, I'm not really going to buy your, uh, your fancy statistical analysis unless, you know, I have excellent reasons to think that the assumptions on which it's based are true, but that's almost never the case. 
uh, this is not how it works. Yeah, it's worth, you know, thinking a little bit about, uh, you know, the, just dwelling on the incentive structure a little bit. So I don't want to pick on a Cherna Zhukov, or if that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, but I think, you know, he's, he's a very successful professor. So I think if you're going to pick on anybody, I mean, I, I don't feel bad about, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, just... it's widely considered a future Nobel Prize. <laughs> okay. That, that, I think it'll be okay, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Well, so, and, and nothing, well, not, I don't think he's doing anything that's, you know, that's special as far as um, anything, you know, that, that that's much of an outlier for for all these problems. But I'm looking at his uh, Google Scholar page, right? He's a uh, he's got a, he's a professor, Department of Economics, Center for uh, Statistics and Data Science at MIT. Um, he's got ten publications. You know, all of them have uh, uh, one or two or three co-authors, as far as I can tell. Ten publications in 2021. Uh, so it's been about uh, it's been about seven months. Uh, the year. So he's got a publication, uh, he's got a publication a month. I assume that each one is about as complex as this is, um, or maybe close to it. Uh, you know, I, I haven't checked, but like, you know, let's say at least a few of them are. And this is the incentive. The incentive is not to do what, what you do, right? The, the incentive is not to put together, you know, to just really, really drill down into something, uh, establish some kind of, uh, some kind of, you know, epistemological certainty about sort of the range of the effects that you're looking at, right? Which is what you're doing. The incentive is to do it sloppily, make your assumptions, get it out there, get it published, and then move on to the next thing. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't care. I don't know if he really cares about masks or K-12s, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, K-12 closers. Maybe he, he could, he could, maybe he doesn't care less at all. You know, that, he couldn't care less at all that, you know, that's not really, uh, uh, you know, that, that's not really necessary to explain what's going on here. It's just the incentive is going to, you know, the incentives are such in a way that they are going to reward people who do a lot of sloppy work. People who do little, uh, you know, uh, people who uh, do uh, thorough work, and it takes time and effort to do thorough work, right? I don't think you, I don't think you can do work that's really thorough, and you're publishing, you know, one paper every three weeks, one paper every month. You know, sometimes I see these. Um, it's really bad scenes in medicine and psychology. I'll see people who who have like uh, ten co-authored, you know. Ted co-authors on like each paper and, you know, every two weeks or every month that, you know, they're releasing something. Uh, and who, you know, to, to like take apart like a scholar's career, you would have to be spend as much time on it as they do, right? You'd have to become a full-time scholar yourself just to fact check, you know, sort of one. You'd have to spend more course. time. Oh yeah. Yeah. You spent more, you probably spent more time on this than a journal. Do you have any doubt about that? That you spent more on this paper, time on this paper than I mean, the there, there were three of them. So, uh, it, you know, I, I, I'm sure that if only because of this, I spend more time, uh, as, you know, I, I, I can see, you know, I think they started working on it on, uh, in, uh, April, 2020 and they submitted it. So this, they, they spent about like maybe two months and a half, three months top on this. Um, and, but there were three of them. And then, you know, they did some, you know, they had some revisions before the paper was, you can see all that because they have put the code on GitHub and I've looked into this, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, there was also a bug in the, uh, there was a, there was a bug in the, the, the code that they used for the paper. So at first I was surprised because like I, I couldn't reproduce their results, but then, you know, I, I changed with uh, Paul Schrems and, uh, um, and he realized that there was a bug in the, in their original code that yeah. had been fixed. I guess what, uh, I guess, yeah, I guess what, I'm, I guess what I'm wondering is, can you become, uh, you know, can you become an, uh, uh, a successful academic at, uh, Chernozhokov's level without 
doing a lot of sloppy work. Like, is, is that possible? Like, so I think Gelman, I don't know a lot about, I know his blog, but I think what he does is just uh, debunk stuff mostly. I don't know if he makes claims himself, but he does a lot of debunking. So maybe you can, you can uh, get, at a, you know, at a high level just by debunking things. But if you're making positive claims about things that are true and you're publishing enough papers to become a, a, a professor at MIT or, or a similar uh, university, can you just assume that that kind of person is just doing a lot of sloppy work or would you not go that far? I wouldn't necessarily go that far because even Chernovshukov, I'm sorry, I also probably don't mispronounce his name, but, you know, sorry, whatever. Um, uh, I don't hold it against people if they can't pronounce mine, so I'm hoping that they will do the same with me. Uh, you know, uh, based on what I know about him, like, I mean, he's... he's, he's uh, He's very, he's not, so for what my understanding is that he's not known for applied work. That's one thing, you know, he's, he's, I think his main, uh, contribution have been theoretical, you know, or like in the field of econometrics. It's basically, I think he's more of a, a guy who gives, who, who creates tools, statistical tools for other people to use in applied works. So I think he's probably like, my understanding is he's done some, uh, uh, very good work in that area, but I'm like, I'm not really in a position to judge. I mean, I haven't read like uh, all of his work or, you know, in fact, I haven't read any of his work except for this, uh, uh, this, this one paper. Um, but, uh, I, I think it's true. You know, I, look, I want one, one thing I want to say because I think, I think you're right that anyone who is, su- who is successful, uh, in, in almost any academic fields and has published a lot of positive results, um, has published a lot of false things, not just a lot of false things, but also a lot of things which are not just false, but also if they had done the kind of, say, sensitivity analysis in a more uh, systematic manner, they would have seen that it was, if not false, at least that they couldn't assert that it was true. But of course, then they wouldn't have gotten published. Uh, Yeah. And and so, yeah, I, I think this is true. But I think... You know, I think it's not, um, I mean, there is a lot of dishonesty. I don't want to get people off the hook. I mean, they can, like, look, the stuff about the, I'm going to be honest, like the stuff about the mask, you know, thing, like, I'm pretty sure this is P hacking. This is like the new, the news is, uh, uh, but you know, I can't be sure. Maybe I'm just being un- unfair with them. Like, I, I'm not, I have no way to prove it or whatever. Uh, if not in this case, certainly I know for a fact that this happens actually pretty often, this kind of, like P hacking, which is where people know what they're doing. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, but I think what happens even more often is that people do, uh, in fact, work that, work that is in fact, you know, uh, sloppy in the sense, you know, when I say sloppy, like again, this paper, for instance, uh, in many ways, it's not sloppy in the sense that it's very sophisticated. They actually thought through carefully about the, the various causal processes here, the, you know, the, they did this, causal uh, schema at the beginning to, to uh, they motivated their model with like an epidemiological model. You know, they did a, you know, in some, there's a sense in which it's clearly not sloppy. In fact, the reason why I chose this paper is precisely because it was not sloppy in that sense. Okay. Well, it was, it was but sloppy. But there's another in the, sense. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I think yeah, there's another sense it. in which it definitely is sloppy, you know, because they don't, they didn't, they didn't account for the, all of those different choices semi-arbitrary choices they had to make uh, that, you know, that I was talking about earlier, and they didn't look at Texas seriously enough to present a full array of results that would have shown that their results are extremely sensitive to those assumptions, semi-arbitrary assumptions you make. 
well, you know, when you set up your model. And, and, and I think this is ubiquitous. Like I say, I think this is definitely everywhere. But I think it's, it's not just, you know, of course, I mean, you're right. Like the incentives are, are play a huge role. I think it's also because they don't think most scientists don't think carefully enough about those epistem, you know, those epistemological questions. Because really, this is epistem, this is a matter of epistemology. And, and I'm not saying they can't understand it or that they never understand it. What do they do? You know, I, I read, you know, like people like Gelman, they talk about that sort of things. Uh, and, and many other people talk about that sort of things who are not philosophers of science or actual scientists. But, you know, it's, it's, we, we, there is not that much difference between a scientist and a craftsman in the sense that just like a craftsman is an apprentice and he learns to do certain things, you know, there is like this way of making, uh, uh, of like, uh, fixing, you know, uh, plumbing and you learn, you have certain techniques that you learn and then you go through the motions and you have slightly different uh, situation that you face, but then you always apply the same script, follow the same script, basically. And I think it's basically the same for scientists. And because of the way they're trained, because they're trained like this, they're trained basically like plumbers, no offense to plumbers. In the case of plumbers, there's nothing wrong with this. In the case of scientists, I think it's more problematic. But basically, they, they are trained this way. They're trying to follow a script. And so they're going to take different questions and they're going to follow the same script mechanically. I think that more often than not, they don't really think about those things. They don't think about how, how much those semi-arbitrary assumptions, uh, uh you know, uh, are in fact semi-arbitrary and how sensitive to those assumptions their conclusions are. Because, you know, again, they weren't trained like this. And as you were saying, they have no incentives to do this. Like the incentives is to not, are to not do this. Uh, so, but I'm, I'm just saying it's not just about the incentives. It's also that again, we greatly exaggerate, in my opinion, the difference between craftsmen and the scientists are just craftsmen of sorts. And this leads in, that's part of the explanation for this kind of problem. Yeah. I think like, I mean, I think the plumber comparison, I think is, yeah, unfair to plumbers and craftsmen. I mean, if you're a plumber, you have to, right? If you have a technique of uh, whatever, unclogging pipes and it doesn't work, you're going to find out pretty quickly. If you're a scientist or if you're an, you know, an academic publishing papers and you're churning out result after result after result and none of them are true, you have no feedback on that unless somebody yeah, like yeah, yeah, but that's, that's just because yeah, yeah, my point, I agree with this. I'm not saying they're similar in all respects. I'm saying they're similar. They're very similar, much more than people realize in this respect that they learn a certain set of techniques. They, they learn to follow a certain uh, yeah. a cer- a limited number of scripts. And then in their career, they just follow these scripts, you know, pretty mechanically. And, 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 you know, that's how they turn out papers. And this is how you get the successful academics. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, of course, I'm not saying they're, and I agree it's unfair, you know, with, uh, uh, plumbers, although you could say that at least the plumbers is lucky enough that he's gonna get the feedback. He's gonna, uh, if, if, if it does, if his fix, like, doesn't work, he's gonna know it pretty soon and he'll have to fix it. Uh, I guess in a way, you know, you could defend scientists and say, well, you know, they don't know this, so they don't even, perhaps the, the plumber, probably the plumber would, would mess things up just as much if they didn't have this feedback. But of course, it's kind of like it's difficult to even imagine what it would be like for a plumber not to have the feedback. But yeah. my point well, is again, not that they were, not that they're similar in all respects, of course, or in particular, I, I agree they're not similar in this respect that you were talking about. 
But I, I, my point is they're similar, at least in this respect, that their training is basically learning a, num- a certain number of scripts. And then for the rest of their career, they're going to mostly follow those scripts. And that's how you get to be a successful academic. And the problem is that following those scripts isn't conducive to finding true stuff or at least stuff that we can be confident is true. Yeah, you're saying what would a plumber, you know, be like without a uh, feedback? You know, I imagine like I don't know if you ever, you know, you call a plumber sometimes and they they try to explain to you the problem, you know, that you're having, and it would be sort of like you know if they were like academics, it would be sort of like you just like listen to you on the phone about the about the problem, and then the plumber said, you know, do X, Y, and Z, right, without ever looking or touching, uh, uh, you know, the whatever wherever you're having the problem, and then not even being told after you're done, whether he was right or wrong, right? He just gives you the advice yeah, and yeah, he hangs up the phone. <laughs> that, that, yeah, it, it, it's, it's as if, you know, your house like instantly disappeared immediately after you've dealt with the plumber. So, you know, you'll never have any way of knowing if, if it actually worked or something. Yeah. You know, somebody, yeah, I, I've, as I've looked more into this stuff and I've, you know, become more skeptical of academia, these statistical methods, uh, Nassim Nicholas Talib, I used to think he was a little bit too extreme. You know, he goes out there and just says, it's all nonsense. You shouldn't trust any scientist, any publication, any, any Anything, um, and as time goes, you know, has gone on. I, I think that's you know that that's closer to the truth than the uh, than the trusty experts, than people who are just you know, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's publications and you know equations and figures. It's definitely it's definitely not true, and I wouldn't say that. But you're totally right that it's most certainly closer to the truth than the prevailing narrative about science. That's but that's not that's not hard, you know. I mean, the prevailing narrative about science is pretty terrible. Yeah. And Talib uh, blocked me for the funniest reason ever on Twitter. And that's the, I think the only person who blocked me on Twitter who, who I became sad about. I said, Oh, this is an actually insightful person. <laughs> so if, if you're listening, yeah, it's, uh, if you're it's listening, funny, you know, he, he follows me and he's, he's, I think he's the only person who follows me who I know will never just stop following me. If, if at some point he's, <laughs> he's going to be annoyed, he's sufficiently annoyed with me, which I know he already is, but not yet enough that he wants to block me. But if I know that the moment you, you consider that like I'm no longer interesting enough or whatever, he's not going to just unfollow me. He's going to block me and be really angry about it. And I, I think it's pretty funny, but uh, I like, I'm very confident of this. So that's, I think that's pretty funny because there's no one else on Twitter I can say that about, you know, like everyone else. I'm, I know that, you know, at some point I'm just going to annoy them. They're just going to quietly unfollow me. But with Taleb, I know I'll know it immediately. <laughs> Yeah, we were, uh, yeah, we were mutuals until one day I posted a, a joke that Scott Alexander made in his blog about, uh, Talib. And then he says, how dare you post this or something like that? <laughs> yeah, that's the end of our, that's the end of our relationship. So yeah, Talib, be, please, you know, maybe I'm blocked block you, uh, eventually. Like I, I've seen this happen to, to some people. Yeah, we could, we could hope. Anyways, this was, uh, this was fun, Philippe. I mean, I think this, uh, I think this post lives up to your war on science, uh, uh, Bill. Like I, you know, you, you might, you might might want to call the uh, blog war on statistics, but I guess statistics is is part of sort of the umbrella of what people think science is, and you know it's it's a fa- it's a fascinating work, and I you know I look forward to um, to seeing you along with CSPI, you know, develop these ideas further, the problems with academia, the problems with official science, and you know how we can hopefully do better. You know, thanks a lot. Yeah, that's the plan. Thanks. It was great.